0: Sourcing for Innovation podcast. My name is Adam Kurdish, your host. We're in the double digits. This is episode 10, and I think the first time we've had Michael Rosenbaum on the podcast. Michael, good morning.
1: Hey, thanks for having me here.
0: Michael is the founder and executive chairman of Catalyte, and today we're going to dig a little bit into that, that foundation story. We're going to figure out really what was the impetus that you had for founding Catalyte, at that point, Catalyst IT Services. Uh, what problem you saw that you were trying to solve, what problem you saw that you were trying to solve, and then use that a little bit to talk about really the foundational element of this company and the way in which we find talent, which is our data platform. So rewind for us for a little bit. Give us a little bit of your backstory and then sort of the the foundations or origins
1: of Catalyte. Sure. So. In the late 90s, I was a fellow at Harvard and I was doing a little bit of teaching and some research and writing, and it was sort of the beginning of an academic career. And while I did that, I did a little bit of work for the Clinton White House. And the Clinton White House was building a cluster of policies at the time around uh, the idea that low-income communities were untapped retail and distribution markets. And so they were building incentives for companies to expand in lower-income communities. And I disagreed with the policies. And I said, you know, it may be true that a low-income community is an untapped retail or distribution market, but more significantly, it's an untapped talent market. And it's an untapped talent market because the market for talent is based on resumes. Resumes correlate with socioeconomic background, but they're not necessarily very good predictors of whether or not someone's going to be successful in a job.
0: Sure. So what's on the resume
1: coordinates to your background, but not necessarily your potential or your ability. That's exactly it. Okay. And so what I said is, if you could apply large amounts of data to that problem, you could do a better job of putting people in the jobs they'd be best in. Organisi- organizations would get better talent, and everyone would be happy. The response was, the guy who came up with the other idea is a lot more famous than you are. We're going with him. And <laughs> plus, you
0: can't—it's—it's it's hard to sell things when you're hiring people. You need—you want to sell the goods first, and then we'll worry about exactly hiring them.
1: exactly. So, so I. Um, I lost the argument, went back to my ivory tower. And the senior professor who was going to help me get the next job, so I was a fellow, the next job is as assistant professor, the person who was going to help me get that job said, you seem more interested in doing this than in writing about it. You should go do it. So um, in the early 2000s, I, uh, I moved to Baltimore because it was a post-industrial city. Mm-hmm. And I started by um, getting a small group of people together and building what at the time was a, was a relatively simple platform, obviously much more complicated today. Um, that use data to assemble software engineering teams. And uh, when we first started doing this, this was before the book Moneyball came out, let alone the movie, which was many years later. So the book came out in 2002. Which, by the way, everyone
0: obviously is listening, can't see it. Behind you is a beautiful poster we have here in the office of Moneyball the movie. Which
1: was actually given to us by the CIO of Sony Pictures. Oh, wow. Um, because he was so excited when we first met him that we had built this idea based on this concept. And he'd been thinking about it for a while. And so we actually went and dug into the Sony Pictures archives and found that poster and sent it to us. <laughs> so. If anyone
0: knows Brad we'd love to get it signed, just FYI.
1: <laughs> that would be awesome. <laughs> so, so we started building this, we built this platform um, and got some, some early success with it. Um, not massive success in its early predictions, but pretty good success. Um, but again, it was before the book Moneyball came out. And so we tried to license it into technology groups. And we said, you're using, um, you're using traditional ways to hire. You're looking at resumes. And as a result, you're getting inconsistent quality, and your economics are off. Use this technology. It's going to solve your problems. And folks were excited, but they didn't call us back. And we said, okay, well, why aren't folks calling us back? Um, and we thought about it. and We said, you know, maybe it's that this is a complicated and new idea, and we need to make this easier for an organization to use this innovation.
0: So the one person, if they stuck their neck out for you in this idea and it somehow didn't work out, they're, they were on the chopping block because you're doing something new, which most people say is valued, but in reality, probably not so
1: much. It can be a little scary. Exactly. Yeah. That's exactly it. And so we said, OK, what would be an easier way for a technology group to use this? And, um, and so what we said is, OK, maybe if we use the technology to hire software engineers ourselves um, and then go to those organizations and say, we get you need a lot of people to sign off if you're going to totally fundamentally change the way your organization is hiring. But if you just use outsourcing, if you're engaging services, then we're absorbing the risk and um, and you know you probably have a budget as a as a technology leader you probably have a budget that you can choose to use on your own, and so we went back and we said okay, you know will you do this if we keep engineers on our payroll and you engage teams from us? And folks said absolutely I'll do that I can sign off on that on my own.
0: It's sort of the ultimate uh, dog fooding experiment. You're sort of you're you're using your own abilities in order to show people the proof of concept. That was
1: exactly it. And so in the early years, most of our business was venture-backed tech companies. Where, um, where the use case was essentially they had built an initial product, and they had gotten a couple of rounds of financing. And now they really needed to scale this big. So they needed expertise that could take something to large scale. And they didn't necessarily have that internally. The investors were saying, you need to cut your burn. So you need to send the work offshore. And remember, this was, these were the years when folks were accelerating use of offshore and global resources. Sure. Um, and it wouldn't work because they couldn't develop a rapidly iterative, iterative enough approach to be able to do this. So
0: this is sort of the coming together of the offshoring movement, but at the same time the rise of agile software development, which is counter to the idea of sending it offshore because of the way, as you just said, the iterative development process needs to be together in one location, not 10 time zones away.
1: Precisely. And so, uh, so that wouldn't work, um, and companies would bring that work back and give it to us. And so that was the, how, that's how the business grew in the early days. Um, did a little bit of, I would say, shadow IT for large companies where there would be an innovation effort inside a large enterprise that wouldn't be able to get the attention of central IT, and so it would engage out, outside help. And because we had expertise really in product development, they would use us. Um, and then after a number of years, uh, we ended up Signing a very large uh, consumer products client, who I may not identify, but we are required to identify as a Fortune 500 sports apparel company based in Beaverton, Oregon. Okay. Um, And they were building a piece of wearable technology, um, and we ended up being their engineering partner on a large piece of that, and they then went public with that information. Um, And the data associated with using this model compared to using other domestic solutions and using global solutions.
0: So that's the whole point of uh, the platform, not to jump ahead here, but it's not just you are hiring a better person for the fit for this one role. You are hiring a better person for the fit for this role in order to have better outcomes. Because if you don't have that second part then it's like okay, it maybe a little bit of cost cutting, and get rid of, you know, Susan from HR, but otherwise why
1: bother? That's exactly it. And in fact, what we realized was that because we were doing this in a, you know, in a different way than organizations were used to doing it, because we were saying we're going to fundamentally rethink how you assemble a team, how you identify the most exceptional talent, um, that we realized that because we were doing something different, that we needed to improve outcomes not a little bit, but by a lot. And so for us, if we say okay, by using this, um, you get you know the same level of outcome as if everyone on, you know, on your alternative team had a PhD, then that actually isn't good enough. That we actually needed our outcomes to be you know, at least 50% better than that. And the question is, how do you achieve it? In the early days, what we did is we tuned that the data platform that allowed us to assemble the teams. We tuned the data platform for retention. So what's the likelihood that X software engineer will stay with the organization on Y team for Z period of time? Now,
0: is that simply because of a, a cost measure, the cost of, of finding, hiring, onboarding, bringing up to speed? That's what companies were very worried about? Or was there another reason that that was the they actually were. They
1: actually, interestingly, were worried about that. But there was a bigger issue here, okay. which was we were trying to come up with a good proxy. With imperfect software engineering outcome data, we were trying to come up with a good proxy for someone being exceptional. And we decided that the good proxy was if a client continued to want this person to support them, even if you know, the economics were more than if they hired their own staff. If they wanted this person to continue to support them for a long period of time, then that was somehow reflective of some level of success. Got it. And yeah. if they were asked to stop supporting that client within a year or whatever that period of time was, then that would be a reflection of a lack of success. And so in the early days, our success rates at this were lower. The very early days, they were, they were lower. And so we were able to use enough failures to train the models to be better and better. But as the models got better and better, that number went up and up and up. And once it got over about 92%, there just weren't enough failures.
0: So 92% is the representative sample of people who are staying at a position for the sort of allotted time that would
1: make them an exceptional engineer. Exactly. So either staying for 12 months or staying sort of through the end of a contract. Got it. So once that number exceeded 92% or so, we didn't have enough failures to continue training the model. And so we said, okay. That's a good we, problem to have. It's a good problem to have, exactly. We were, but it was still a problem. And so we started looking at other data sets that we could use. And because of the platform that we use to manage software engineering generally, we actually do have a series of outcome metrics that relate to software engineering. So, you know, we have a, a sort of customized JIRA platform. And through that customized JIRA platform, we can measure um, things like how many points is someone delivering in a particular period of time that are accepted by a product owner or a client. Now, you know, obviously you can't compare that from team to team because those points may be defined differently, but things you can measure that often we find to be relevant predictions are things like how many points does someone deliver in the first two weeks that someone's on something and how does that compare to the next two weeks after that and the next two weeks after that. And so you could say that might be a proxy for speed of learning Or speed of ramping up but when you do the kind of work we do someone's ability to get into a project and deliver very very quickly is of a very high premium and so that became an important metric another example metric could be um, you know if there is a defect what percentage of the defects that are found in one two week sprint are still there at the end of the following two week sprint so these are just some examples of sort of software engineering outcome metrics that you can predict for, that actually do demonstrate that you're achieving much higher levels of outcome sure. than alternative models. That's sort of how we do it.
0: So let's take one step back and talk about the the sort of buildup of data here and their refinement of the platform. So as you said, like in the beginning, you have a very small data set and the higher variability then in terms of what you can actually predict. Now, um, 15, 17 years later, obviously a much larger data set How do you take um, improved outcome data, put that back into the model, and then especially back into the model to try to find even better candidates?
1: Yeah, so so today we're collecting data from a few different buckets on a person, and then we collect the outcome data that associates with that person. So the three buckets are essentially third-party data— Background data, which sort of includes a resume. Obviously, when we first started, you know, we thought, well, resumes don't don't mean anything. It turns out resumes actually do tell you certain things. They're just not necessarily what you think they're telling you. So an example might be someone who's had a lot of jobs in a short period of time. Um, some people might think that means that person's not going to stay in your job or be successful in your job. That isn't necessarily true. It might be true. It might not be true, depending on the other data you collect on someone. And then the third bucket is this interaction data we get directly from job applicants where we may ask questions of them um, that involve sort of a series of problems, but what we're really doing is collecting our keystrokes as they respond. So we take those three buckets of data and then build models that compare that data to outcome data we've collected on folks in the past. So historically, this business has hired about 1,100 software engineers. And to hire the about 1,100 software engineers, we've sorted through about 50,000, you know, aspiring software engineers or, or interested software engineers who have been interested in those jobs. So that gives us sort of a relatively, not a massive data set, but a large enough data set where we have very deep data on a group of people. And what it lets us do is it lets us split up the data. So we can take pieces of that data and say, okay, we're going we're to split this into a training data set, which is, which is essentially we're going we're to use this subset of this information in order to figure out what the right model is, and then we're going to test that model against another randomly selected group to see how good the model is and then once we come up with the model that we want at a particular moment in time then we'll deploy that into our into our application process into our platform where we then look at people who are applying for jobs and use that to predict the likelihood they're going to achieve a particular outcome
0: so you talk about collecting data from these couple of different buckets one of them being the the screening that an applicant would take in that in that screening process what are some of the the attributes that you're looking for Um, from a a candidate? You know, we talked about the outcome data, maybe speed of learning, uh, cognitive agility, those sorts of things. Is that what you're looking for in that initial screen?
1: Interestingly, what we're really looking for is data that gives us signal as to what the outcome will be. And so we don't necessarily, we do test hypotheses, but that isn't the only way that we look at this. We also look at correlations and see whether or not we can come up with a hypothesis as to why that correlation may exist and there's a debate inside inside the data science community on this topic as to whether or not you should do supervised research or unsupervised research. So should you come up with a hypothesis and test it in the data? Or should you look for correlations and let that challenge what your assumptions may be? We do both. And particularly when you're thinking about how we look at another person and how we figure out whether or not we think they're likely to be good in a job, there are so many biases, some of which are conscious, but many of which are subconscious, that we think it is important to use both approaches in order to challenge any subconscious assumptions we might have. So one of those examples is a four-year college degree. So the assumption that a four-year college degree is, a, is an important criterion of success in a professional job like software engineering is deeply embedded in our culture. It's almost sacrosanct. Exactly. The idea that people should get four-year college degrees. And I'm actually not expressing any opinion as to whether or not people should get four-year college degrees. The only thing I'm expressing opinion about is whether or not a four-year college degree correlates with success for a software engineer. And what we find is the answer to that is no. And so, in fact, when you look at identifying the top 1% to 2% of all software engineers, which is what we're doing, you know, on the basic premise that um, there's, a ma- there's a massive difference between a good software engineer and a great software engineer. So finding the top 1% to 2% is really critical. That when we're looking at the top 1% to, to, to 2% of, of software engineers, that something like 44% of the people that we identify as in that group do not have four-year college degrees. Of that 44%, about 11% have a community college degree, but but you're talking about a relatively large percentage of people who do not have a four-year college degree. And I think that's probably a reflection of the fact that we don't actually find, once you collect a large data set on a person and map it to an outcome, we don't actually find a statistically significant correlation Um, between that four-year college degree and success.
0: Have you gone back to fellow colleagues at the Clinton White House and been like, I told you so?
1: (laughs) (laughs) They've all gone to do very important, fabulous things. I am involved in certain initiatives now around, uh, around sort of what does this mean for public policy? Sure. And, you know, and have been involved with sort of a series of initiatives on that front that I think are probably a little more accepted today than they may have been almost 20 years ago.
0: Well, one of them is the uh, the rework America task force part of the Markle Foundation that now you're a founding member of. Absolutely. And I guess the question with that is they are as you said advocating for this idea of sort of skills-based hiring, which as you just mentioned 10 15 years ago you couldn't get anyone to return your calls. It was just sort of mm, thanks but no thanks. How has that changed in the marketplace in those years or why are companies more um willing to engage in this is just because more familiarity with data
1: and using technology in this in this manner? I mean, interestingly, I think this parallels the way in which Catalyte as an organization has been accepted by the market. And when you think about sort of how we've talked about it, concepts of quote unquote big data, you know, AI and machine learning, which are really the concepts we're talking about here that are the power that drive this, um, you know are talked about today and are accepted today. So, you know, when the book Moneyball came out in 2002, we used to use it as a calling card to say, this may sound really weird, but look, the Oakland A's did it, and here's a book about it. And um, unfortunately, the problem is at the time, the only people who actually read that book were people really into baseball and people in the finance industry. And it wasn't really until there was a movie with Brad Pitt that – You know, that it really started getting accepted into sort of the, you know, sort of the public domain. And, you know, and obviously at the same time, concepts of data really picked up steam. And there were some early drivers of that. So the hedge fund industry was an important early driver of the power of data to make more efficient decisions, Um, you know, marketing technologies, you know, that were driving a lot of the sort of, you know, last version of the internet or version before the last version of the internet, (laughs) you know you know, drove some of these ideas into, into just more popular acceptance. The idea that this could be done for people in employment, obviously, you know, the idea of Moneyball is directly related to that. But, um, but I think that there's just sort of been a, a broader acceptance of this. But still, the kinds of things that we're talking about that the Markle Foundation is working on, you know, are still early, I think. So, again, this idea that, you know, what is the relevance of a four-year college degree in that particular kind of education? What does that actually mean? Well, it goes against
0: uh, years of just, again, sort of general cultural pressure. I mean, me growing up definitely was you have to get a four-year college degree in order to have a a well-paying job and a good career, which sort of took over from the idea that we seem to be sort of getting back into of learn a trade, learn a skill. Now, that was for a long time like work with your hands, blue collar. Now we're starting to, I think, realize, as you said, the correlation isn't there between college degree and being able to learn a valuable skill that is traditionally white-collar, which is software engineering.
1: Now, there may be other correlations. You know, I, I, All I could speak to is when we look at our data set, um, is there a correlation when you control for lots of other data, is there a correlation between that four-year college degree and success as a software engineer? And I think, you know, it's probably a whole other podcast about sort of how the post-secondary education market thinks about what it does and what the value it provides. Right. And, you know, and again, I'm not here to, to sort of, you know, talk about that one way <laughs> or the other. I, you know, just, again, when we look at our data set and we look at predicting an outcome, which is what we're trying to do here, what we're trying to do is how do we predict the likelihood that this person is going to be in the top one to 2% of all software engineers?
0: I wanna go back for one second to another thing you mentioned about taking out the subconscious bias in the model. Um, I talked with uh, Jake, our CEO, the other day about this, and my comment was, same on Wall Street. If you have an algorithm to do stuff, it does things a lot faster. Now, if you do it correctly, it does good things a lot faster. If you program it incorrectly, it does bad things a lot faster. So in the hiring process here, if you have subconscious bias from a hiring director, that's a slow process. It's one, maybe two people a day. If you put that into a big data platform, that can get really bad really fast. So how do you take out that bias from the initial um, setup of the platform so that it doesn't sort of
1: snowball from there, but rather snowballs in a positive direction? So we do some validation just to make sure that we're not accidentally introducing some problems. But there's a much bigger, more interesting issue here, which which is what is the implication for bias in the hiring market as a whole for... A whole range of questions relating to the software engineering labor market, and obviously, you know, in you know recent months and years, there's been a lot of conversation in Silicon Valley, in particular, about the lack of diversity in the software engineering market. And the question is, why is that? And there's actually a bunch of academic research in the labor market as a whole about the way in which bias is introduced into that market. So there's some you know interesting practical studies for orchestras. And, you know, the idea that if you put the musicians behind a screen— A blind audition. A blind audition, exactly. You know, that you get increased diversity, but you didn't actually get improved gender diversity um, until you put carpet down so people couldn't hear high heels. Interesting. So there's, you know, there are broader studies around bias against African-American job applicants where, you know, where some of the sort of probably most relevant studies in the space have, have found things like if you take the same resume and you put a Caucasian-sounding name and an African-American-sounding name at the top of the same resume, that the, you know, Caucasian-sounding name is 50% more likely to get a callback for an interview than the person with the African-American-sounding name, which sure. suggests, you know, substantial bias in the way the labor market works today. What we find very interesting is that when we apply these models, that the percentage of different group demographic groups in our higher pool look very similar to the metro area slash our applicant pool. So an example among African-American applicants is that when you look at centers that we have at Catalite, so we have a center in Baltimore, in Baltimore um, the percentage of the metro area in of Baltimore that is African American is a little over 27%. The percentage historically of African American software engineers in Baltimore's in Catalyst's Baltimore operation is 24.7%. So you're talking about you know you're not even talking about an applicant pool you're talking about the the metro area that our numbers align pretty tightly with you know, the demographics of the metro area. In Portland, which, you know, has a very different set of demographics. So Portland, the Portland metro area is 3.9% African American. Our Portland operation historically is just over 3% African American. Sure. Again, pretty tightly aligned with the metro areas that, that we're operating in. Which again would go
0: back to um, prove the theory that talent is equally distributed if you are simply putting out message to an entire metro area and the Hires that you're getting back reflect the demographics of that general metro area. Exactly. So we're taking this model, and the data so far suggests that it is a potential remedy for some of these um, biased, either conscious or subconscious hiring practices that we see, at least in software engineering. How hopeful are you in sort of spreading this sort of skills-based hiring model to other um, careers, other different markets, um, and do you think that the adoption is going to increase again as people become more comfortable with the concepts of AI, big data, and having these decisions taken out of um, sort of human control to some degree?
1: I mean, actually answer the last piece of that question first, which is I don't think that what we are doing is taking decisions out of human control. I think what we are doing is we are pairing sort of the best part of human knowledge and instinct with... Uh, with using the power of technology to fill in the holes. So when you say to someone, when you say to most people, here is the group of people who are most likely to be exceptional software engineers. Um, not many people are going to say, well, I. I, I they're going to say, I want to hire those three people. They're probably not going to say, I don't want to hire that one person because I don't like what they look like. And you know and so what you're doing is you're you're taking away some of the weaknesses in the way that we as human beings process information and providing support to that and then marrying the best of our instincts with you know with something that can sort of control for perhaps not the best of our instincts
0: you're giving them the good news first this person's going to be great and then if they want to act sort of counter to that positive reinforcement given what the person looks like sounds like whatever then that gets into obviously
1: more explicit bias right and so so we think that the power of marrying technology with human behavior is actually the most powerful way of attacking this market you know you asked about sort of what are the possibilities for expanding this outside of the technology sector and i think that you're starting to see some interesting things in some other sectors so in healthcare there are some very interesting things going on. Um, you know, obviously we have a business that we've spun out of this that's focused on healthcare called Arena. Um, you know, also there are some interesting initiatives at certain hospital systems around challenging ideas for, for example, whether or not nurses need four-year college degrees and how do you think about bias in um, in the relationship between a nurse with a four-year college degree and a community college degree. But but I think that over time this will get adopted. You know, more broadly. But I think right now in the technology sector specifically, I think it's a really interesting set of questions because, you know, technology is the driver of innovation in our economy. And when you think about technology as the driver of innovation in our economy and the ability of the technology sector to understand the power of what we're doing and to benefit from it, I think that, you know, that over the next couple of years, we're going to see a massive uptick in adoption of these ideas inside. the the technology and software engineering market specifically. With perhaps
0: the caveat that, again, this takes a while, company to company, industry to industry, to build up that good set of data so that the hiring decisions are uh, as good as possible. That's exactly it, exactly it. So, Mike, thank you so much. Great conversation today. Anything else you want to say before we sign off? No, thanks for having me, and I'm excited you're doing this. This is great. Appreciate it. Thank you. Thanks.